Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Welcome to another edition of Lessons from Luminaries, brought to you by uh, Village Global. Village Global, as many of you know, is an early stage uh, venture capital firm backed by some of the world's most successful entrepreneurs like Mark Zuckerberg, Jeff Bezos, Sarah Blakely, and indeed Bill Gates. And uh, I think Bill Gates being with us here this morning is a testament to just how passionate these luminaries are about supporting the next generation of innovators, many of whom, of course, are in this room. We have about uh, 80 to 100 world-class founders here with us this morning. Uh, for this morning's event, of course, we have our LP, Bill Gates, in conversation with another extraordinary entrepreneur and friend of Village Global, Julia Hartz. Julia is co-founder and CEO of Eventbrite and recently took the company public on the New York Stock Exchange. Please welcome Julia Hartz and Bill Gates. Thank you all for coming. And this is a pretty epic location. Yeah, it's you beautiful. You have the better view. Uh, yeah, the bridge <laughs> looks good. Well, thank you, Bill, for taking the time this morning, um, you know, leading up to this great opportunity and honor to interview Bill. We've, my team and I have spent a couple of weeks just going deep, and um, it's been just fascinating. It's actually been really helpful for my team as we've been thinking about 2019 planning, uh, which I'm sure you don't, don't miss much, but probably still do to some extent. And we have been thinking about themes around uh, creating long-term value and really about the importance of sustainable business and philanthropy. And so today we're going to take a little bit of a journey through the different parts of uh, how you've made this world a, a better place. And I wanted to start with really acknowledging the entrepreneurs and founders in this room and uh, how much collective blood, sweat, and tears uh, we've given to, to our companies as the founder and, and operating CEO for 25 years of one of the most prolific and valuable startups, I wanted to start with your perspective on the important choices that you made during your tenure at Microsoft and how you view those choices as they've related to the long-term growth story of the company. Well, Microsoft was very lucky in that we're not a capital intensive business. You know, it was financed by money I'd made in high school. Uh, <laughs> and I did the, the school <laughs> scheduling and there was all sorts of software things you could do and make money fairly easily uh, in those days because the number of people who knew how to do software things was, was very small. We did take uh, an investment. We sold 5% of the company at a valuation of $20 million took in a million dollars from a venture firm, uh, Dave Marquardt's uh, venture firm, just because we wanted to have him, actually it was more of the senior people, but it ended up being him, uh, <laughs> advise us about uh, various choices we had to make. And you know, those early days, we were, because we knew that software was this magical thing, and it was enabled because the chip was magical, and weirdly, people didn't understand that you know, Moore's Law essentially said that computing power would be infinite. And so the best way to think about it was to say, okay, software would be the limiting factor 
towards any sort of digitally assisted activity. And you know, we thought of ourselves as a software company. We ended up competing with companies that were single product companies. So like, I wonder if anybody here has ever heard of like Ashton Tate or, has anybody ever heard of Ashton Tate? Okay, good. Uh, <laughs> there was a great article where I gave a hardcore speech about our database and yeah. it said, Gates says Ashton Tate never existed, but I didn't <laughs> actually say that. I, I just said that they might cease to exist at some point. Um, anyway, very competitive. There was a spreadsheet called 123, a word processor called WordPerfect. So these were single product companies. And in terms of really building your engineering tools, your international distribution, sales, consulting, how you work with corporate Salesforce, if you thought of yourself as a software company and a platform company, it was very different than saying, okay, I have 123, which was a Lotus uh, spreadsheet product. So we didn't fail for ambition, but then the intensity of executing on it was super, super hard. When you think about about the people who helped you, you know, really get Microsoft into a scaling zone beyond your, your founding team, can you reflect on, on one of the most important hires you made that, you know, maybe we don't know about but would give us insight into the early days? Yeah, so the one you probably do know about is Steve Ballmer. Steve was with me at Harvard. He went off and worked for, he actually graduated, went to Procter & Gamble. (laughs) Then he was going to Stanford Business School. And I had so overcommitted the firm because I was always worried. We had lots of customers go bankrupt. And I was hiring people who had children. You know, they were moving to the city. And so I'd always do this calculation of, okay, do I have enough money that if nobody pays me, can I pay the employees for over a year? And so I, need, I realized I needed somebody who could hire people and maybe even tell me not to sell things that weren't done yet. Uh, <laughs> uh, so I convinced Steve to drop out of business school. He came on and he was extremely good at hiring people. Then we realized we needed somebody who'd been in a large corporation. We made a mistake. We hired somebody from Tektronix who, when we interviewed him, we were so embarrassed that why would he want to come to our crummy little company? We forgot to interview him. Uh, But then after six weeks when he hadn't plugged his computer in, we actually decided that he wasn't the right person. Uh, But there was a person who worked at Radio Shack, a guy named John Shirley, that I wanted to hire and I couldn't even say it because I really respected John. He was a, yeah. a huge customer at that point. And so I had my, the guy, the venture capitalist, Dave Marquardt, is on the board, go say to John that I wanted to hire him. And John was like, well, of course, God, I'd love to come there. So I guess I underestimated our attractiveness at that point. But he came in and he was the adult who you know, had done financial planning. Like we made this uh, mouse peripheral and we had a warehouse full of them because we'd made too many. I mean, just such stupid things. And John just completely got that stuff under control. He was president for nine years. Wow. And he was an adult who knew how to hire adults. Uh, so we ended up with a nice mix of uh, young, naive, uh, over-optimistic people who still we controlled everything. Uh, and then the adults who could ask us to think twice before we you know, did three crazy things per day. Um, (laughs) So it was a really great blend of skills. And we learned how to accept the fact that they weren't quite as intense as we were. I mean, they had like wives and kids and things. Uh, So they would go 
they would leave at some point during the day. Um. <laughs> <laughs> or night. <laughs> that leads me to, to a question that I had for you about the early days and, and, and your, in your work ethic. You've been you know, quoted as saying you, you, you know, and probably something that we can all relate to, in your 20s and 30s, you were in the go-go years of Microsoft. You didn't take vacations. You basically, all you did was work. When you look at, at in hindsight, those years and, and what those yielded, and you look at, at founders today, would you give that same advice? How would you approach even the concept of work-life balance, or do you think that's not possible for, for early-stage founders? Well, I think you, know, you can over-worship and mythologize the idea of working extremely hard. For my particular makeup, I mean, it really is true that I didn't believe in weekends. I didn't believe in vacations. I mean, you know, I knew everybody's license plate, so I could tell you over the last month when their car had come and gone from the the parking lot. (laughs) So I don't recommend it. A, I don't think most people would enjoy it. Uh, Once I got into my 30s, I could hardly even imagine how I had done that because by then some natural behavior kicked in and I loved weekends and, you know, my girlfriend liked vacations and that turned out to be kind of a neat thing. Uh, (laughs) Now I take lots of vacations. My 20-year-old self is so disgusted with my uh, current uh, uh, self, you know. I I was sure I would never do anything but ride and coach. You know, now I have a plane. So it's, it's <laughs> very much counter-revelations have taken place at, at high speed. But yes, it is nice if during those first several years, if you have a team that's chosen to be pretty maniacal about the company. And how far that goes, you, you know, should have a mutual understanding so you're not uh, one person expecting one thing, another person expecting another thing. And you'll have individuals who, who have, you know, health or relatives or things that are distracted. But yes, I have a fairly hardcore view that there should be a very large sacrifice made during those, those early years, particularly if you're trying to do some engineering things that you, you have to get the feasibility. And, you know, in the software world... It's very, particularly for platforms, these are winner-take-all markets. So, you know, the greatest mistake ever is the whatever mismanagement I engaged in that caused Microsoft not to be what Android is. That is, Android is the standard phone platform, non-Apple phone, phone platform. That was a natural thing for Microsoft to win. And, you know, it's... It really is winner take all. We, you know, if you're there with half as many apps or 90% as many apps, you're on your way to complete doom. There's room for exactly one yeah. non-Apple operating system, and that, you know, what's that worth? 400 billion that would be, you know, transferred from company yeah. G to company M. Uh, <laughs> uh, and it's amazing to me, having made, you know, one of the greatest mistakes of all time, and there was this antitrust lawsuit and various things that. You know, our other assets, Windows Office, are still very strong. So we are a leading company. Uh, if we'd gotten that one right, we would be the, the. Uh, leading company. <laughs> but oh well. The difference uh, between A and D. Uh, so this idea that just small differences can magnify themselves, that doesn't exist for a lot of businesses. You know, if you're a service business, it 
it doesn't exist. But for software platforms, uh, it's, it's absolutely gigantic. And so that's partly where you have the mentality of every night you think, am I screwing this up? And eventually, uh, <laughs> we did screw a super important one up. When you think about, uh, you know, you've been, uh, I guess, like, I would bet on you to find the key to reversing aging. It's a personal opinion. When you do find that and you could go back to your 20s, um, what, would you, what would you start? Well, AI, the paradigmatic question for anybody who's ever written a piece of software is, what is the software that's controlling a human? Its ability to write symphonies, play chess, uh, engage in social activity, you know, read. You know, computers, we picked that AI, we would define AI by certain uh, sensory perception thing, primarily speech understanding and vision, and that those would be the frontier, also chess playing, but that turned out to be really... Uh, solvable, that is, to be better than humans by brute force techniques. So that kind of got taken off about 15 years ago. But you're always wondering, when can I create a computer uh, that could take, say, a textbook, read it, take the AP exam, and get a five? And, you know, that's completely unsolved. So the most interesting, you know, this guy Hilbert laid out 22 problems for mathematicians in 1900. You know, if you think of the equivalent in software, problem number one uh, that sort of subsumes most of the other problems. Although there are things about simulating the environment that are, are also interesting. But anyway, problem number one is not solved. And so that's what you would work on. Uh, if your mind, you know, from age, say, 11, is thinking about software and what can it do, what can it not do, and then, you know, you think you're really good at writing code, and then you meet somebody who's better, and you think, okay, now I'm really good, then you meet somebody who's better... You know, by age 18, actually, you might be pretty good. So the rest of your life, you're going to think about the structure of the software that can do the equivalent of, of, of what a human can do. So I would definitely be drawn to that. Now, it turns out at this era, that's not the only interesting problem. I mean, there are certain problems in biology, diseases of the poor, one that I'm obsessed with. Yeah. I'm not doing the test tubes myself, but I get to uh, help pick and fund the people working on those things. And there's also things in energy that have to do with inventions that would avoid climate change. So, you know, I would definitely do software because that's what my brain, you know, it's like Bobby Fischer playing chess. I mean, your mind gets molded and shaped in a pretty permanent way to the obsessive problems of age 11 to 21. When you think about uh, you know the last few decades and your you know being such an iconic entrepreneur and founder um, for obviously this room and, and many others, but also in seeing how entrepreneur entrepreneurship has changed and shifted over the last few decades, and then being in present day where you are spending. Uh, more time with the next generation of founders on uh, you know many different subjects. One of them is philanthropy. What have you What have you observed that has changed over the last few decades in terms of entrepreneurship and and what are you uh, learning from founders of of the next generation? Well, I'm sure it's nice that the idea of being a founder is a thing. That is <laughs> that you can meet other people doing it and. 
the notion that if your first one isn't perfect, that it's okay to do a second one. (laughs) And there's all these people who want to hand you money now. Uh, It's got a real ecosystem. (laughs) Now, to go with that nice feature, it also means that the ease of entry, and therefore, unless you've come up with something really outthought everyone, there are a dozen other people who say, okay, let's design drugs with machine learning. Right. Uh, you know, let's do radiology with machine learning. So it, you, you get to move fast. You get to see the patterns. You don't have to invent a lot of things, uh, even a lot of things you don't even have to do inside the company anymore. Yeah. You know, like cloud computing simplifies the ability to scale at a moment's notice. But you do get intense competition, including from the existing giants that you know are kind of sc- scanning uh, the world with close to infinite R and D resources. So, you know, I, I think they, there's a lot more thinking that goes into about okay, what do I want my company to be like? There's you know, you can look at Netflix and say, you know, do I want to do? Because he's a very innovative thinker about doing things slightly differently than what other people have done. And, you know, Reid Hoffman writes books that are, are fantastic. So it's a more understood field, whereas then the idea of, okay, you're 19 years old, they won't let you rent a car, uh, you have a company. It was so bizarre that actually people would overreact, and once they realized that such a thing existed, they would expect you to understand and know things that you had no, no clue about. It because it was almost like a wild card that you can write software better than my entire software engineering team can. Uh, so I think it's, it's great that it's well-established. And some of these practices about treating your workers well, thinking about diversity, I mean, they, these are also uh, require energy to do these things. But the field is so much better about um, making these companies good. And the companies themselves, of course, you know, the private sector and the innovation in the private sector is the primary reason why things are improving. Philanthropy has this very specialized role to play. So the, the companies themselves, the likelihood you'll do more good through your philanthropy than through the company you do, that, there can be cases like that, but particularly if you're thoughtful about it, the work you do in your company does have huge benefits to the world. Well, that leads me to, to a, a question that I think uh, many founders these days are um, pondering, which is you know, social impact and creating a culture that's focused around social good, to what you just mentioned, is a core part of um, at least expectation setting in, in this part of the world. Um, in our little bubble here. Um, but, you know, I wondered what your thoughts are on how early a leader of a company or a founder should be thinking about giving back. And um, I think you have a really interesting perspective on this that's pretty well informed, but can, maybe you could share that, that perspective with the audience about, you know, do, do we, should we be giving back as early as possible? Should we be compounding value in our companies? How do you think about hybrid model? Well, I'm always trying to convince companies that they should do employee giving, you know, payroll deduction, have nonprofits come in and talk. It used to be that people would structure that around the United Way campaign. Now you can still do that, but a lot of people sort of create their own. But 
I think having the company, you know, kind of different parts of the company compete to be the most generous and sit and learn about, there's a lot of people who are in tough situations that it's easy to forget when you work in these companies. I think that's good for the, the company. I also think the founders, even though you're not going to have a lot of liquidity, the idea of picking one local cause that you're engaged with, you know, sometimes with your spouse, sometimes not, not necessarily. So you start down that learning curve, like, okay, you know, pick a charter school that you go by and, and get to know the people who are at that charter school and what their challenges are. Go to the local public school or, you know, there's dozens of other things. I think it, it doesn't work well to just do your company and then think, okay, where now, where are these needs? Because you won't, the, the fact that it's so different, that is, there's no market signals and the, the expertise about measuring things is very different, you'll have a hard time doing it. You know, so like Mark Zuckerberg, he's starting his uh, giving at a much younger age, uh, in his early 30s, where I really, I did my pilot giving in my late 40s and then moved into the serious giving relative to the amount I had, not until uh, my 50s. Mm-hmm. You said that the most important speed issue is often not technical but cultural in an organization, and it's convincing everybody that the company's survival depends on moving as fast as possible. And you've touched on that a little bit this morning around the early days and the importance of that uh, continuity of of effort and, and focus on velocity. I'm wondering, when you think about the disciplines and the lessons and the approaches that you're bringing from your years at Microsoft into the world of philanthropy, and particularly around the areas of focus today, global health, energy, education, you know, how are you seeing the, the effectiveness of those, of those lessons and disciplines and approaches uh, in, this, in this sort of new area of focus? Yeah, of course, the word philanthropy, you know, like entrepreneurship, covers a big range of things. Uh, what my wife Melinda have chosen to do is to create an organization that is taking responsibility for reducing and eliminating the diseases of the poor, which are infectious diseases. And so, you know, we spend $5 billion in total. About a bit over $2 billion of that is sort of drug and vaccine R&D. And so I get to, when I, you know, say, okay, we're going to build a TB drug team. We're going to build the TB vaccine team. We're going to build the, you know, kill all the mosquitoes in the world, gene drive, CRISPR team. Uh, (laughs) I get to, in terms of how we fund that, organize it, how many locations do we wait till they have this result before we scale it up? I get to use the same, or 80% the same, uh, type of thinking that I exercised in terms of, okay, let's go do Windows, let's go do Excel, uh, so it's backing engineers, it's getting a sense of the team, you know, what needs to be added to that team or the IQs on the team adding up as opposed to subtracting from each other. And it's very comfortable because the, the most intense period of, of Microsoft was where these teams were about size 30. And for our diseases, you know, typhoid, rotavirus, there's a lot of diseases that hopefully you'll never hear of again, uh, most of which don't exist here in the U.S. So it is very, very similar. It takes a decade, generally, 
from start to finish. The AIDS vaccine actually were on year 14, and uh, it'll probably be another eight to 10 years before that one is completely done. So some take as long as, as 20 years uh, because there's many dead ends and you have kind of a, a portfolio of approaches. But yes, I feel like my working with governments, hiring smart people, managing teams, it did prepare me well for this very operational uh, organization that's a lot like a business except that our profit is lives saved as opposed to uh, a monetary measure. So, you know, the zero to five mortality, which was 11 million a year in 1990 and now is under six million a year, our metric is, you know, by 2030, can we get that to three million a year? And if so, we did a good job. And it's very doable. You know, so you, it, there is feedback there. Now we had to create a whole measurement system uh, to go out and make sure we understood not only the number of deaths, but the causes of deaths so that, that we can tackle the, the right things. So it, it, compared to most philanthropy, where you think, okay, I'll write this nice check to this organization, it's a very hands-on thing because I like using these skills that I'm addicted to. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you have commented on numerical literacy in our, in our society, and, and you know, as an example, you note that people dramatically overestimate how much the U.S. spends on foreign aid. What's your best idea on how to make Americans more knowledgeable about where their tax dollars go? Yeah, the idea that democracy involves sort of studying the budget and knowing how much is spent and, you know, candidate A proposes to change it in this way, and candidate B proposes to change it that way. And it's this very technocratic exercise where people actually understand the, those big numbers. You know, the closer you get to the, the more you realize, wow, that is not what's going on here. You know, even members of Congress, the complexity of the budget and the trade-offs there, there are a few who, who put those pieces together. The general idea that, you know, foreign aid is less than 1%, and that it basically saves lives for less than $500 per life saved, that's a very hard thing to get across. And even if you did get that across to people, I don't know if they're as shocked as they should be that, oh, you mean I write a check for $500, I buy more measles campaigns, and literally I saved uh, a child's life because you know, we view lives, we behave and I think appropriately, as, as though lives here in the U.S. are worth many millions of dollars. I mean, we will spend $10 million right. in an uh, acute, uh, you know, say, certain type of child with cancer type situation, uh, you know, that those are our values. So anyway, there's this contrast. The idea that you could get people to, to decide to support this foreign aid thing, which is a big deal, for our foundation, from a numeric point of view, we're still pushing that a little bit. But honestly, the story of the one child, you know, if you say to an audience, here's the picture of this child, shall we save this child? They're more engaged than if you said, hey, let's save a million children. You know, so there's definitely a sort of, you know, 10 to the 6 problem uh, here somewhere. Uh, yeah, that's <laughs> that fascinating. Humans are not wired to do that on a numeric basis. And so, you know, that's why we have people like Bono 
and, and many others who come from a more storytelling world. Yeah. And then they let me throw a few charts and numbers in just uh, <laughs> because I think that that should, should be there. Once your heart tells you what direction to go in to prove that this is a, a very affordable, you know, not a big deal, well-managed path to, to be on. When you think about your um, more domestic uh, areas of focus, K through 12 education is, is one of them. How do you think about about the the issues that face Americans, and are you finding more energy uh, around those issues when you when you speak to audiences uh, stateside? Or are you uh, how do you think about the differences of you know the the American plight versus the rest of the world? Yeah, so we do two things. We do this global stuff with health at the center, and that's about 80%. Yeah. And then we, here in the U.S., our centerpiece is education, uh, including both K-12 through and higher ed, but K-12 through is, is the biggest piece. We thought that because U.S. education is here and everybody's so rational and wants to do it so well, that we'd have big wins in U.S. education, like you know, cut the dropout rate in half, we have, the U.S. has the highest dropout rates both in high school right. and in college, higher than any country in the world. So we actually have more people enter higher education than any other country. We have 12 countries who graduate more people uh, from higher ed than we do. And you know, in terms of cost of education, the person who really is in bad shape is the one who paid that cost and didn't get the degree. That's a bad deal. Actually, if you get the degree... You know, if it wasn't some for-profit culinary cooking school that was fooling you about job opportunities. Uh, uh, so except for a few, maybe 10% of the cases, it's actually not such a bad situation. In any case, our success in terms of the macro numbers, like high school dropouts, math test scores, verbal test scores, you know, where the U.S. also legs many other countries, particularly Asian countries, uh, our success there is very small. You know, we poured a lot in. And yes, I can point to charter schools that we've been involved in, that if you go and visit, it'll be very uplifting. And that's great. And that, you know, that's mm, close to a million kids a year. But there's, you know, 52 million kids in the U.S. in K through 12. So if you help a million, you won't see it. It's in the rounding error of the macro measurements of that system. It's a system that spends, you know, ignore philanthropy, $10,000 per student per year. And so philanthropy, you have to have a theory, why could philanthropy, I mean, this is true for all these things, why is philanthropy sort of like investing a, a dollar to found Google? Why is it so overall impactful? And the answer is that this is an enterprise that has no R&D department. That is, it's studying why certain teachers can teach you two years of math, whereas that other teacher over there makes you think that math's not for you. You know, what is that person doing? What, and there are certainly people with incredible natural skills who figured it out on their own. That is not well understood, nor is there an attempt to scale up, you know, what that top uh, 10% practice is looking like. We started, we did 20,000 hour, hours of videos of elite, the very, very best teachers and the other teachers, and we analyzed it, and you know, we figured out the key characteristics. But getting the training system to move that across you know, so that the top 40% could be as good as the top 10%, anyway, that did not succeed. So it's far more difficult 
uh, partly because your money is tiny uh, compared to the thing. Also, people are basically satisfied with the way it is. I mean, you can get a small group and say, hey, let's make this better. But then when you say, okay, that means your neighborhood school is going to shut down uh, or you're the teacher in your neighborhood is going to feel some pressure on them, then people always say their, their neighborhood school is good, but the school system as a whole is very bad. Anyway, it, <laughs> it, this one is one that we underestimated how hard it is, and we're on our sort of third revision of the strategy, still very committed to it. Uh, and truthfully, we probably help more like 4 million out of 50 million. Uh, so it's starting to show a little bit uh, in the numbers. So, you know, hope remains eternal. And because the one we thought was hard, global health, happened so much bigger, you know, at least we, we know we're not completely stupid. Uh, <laughs> so it gives you, you know, it's nice if at least some of your projects are going well. Yeah. It really does help you persevere in the one that, that appears to be super, way harder than, than you imagined. Well, it sounds like you are exuding the, the uh, characteristics the characteristics of a possibilist, which brings me to my next my next question around around your book list. Um, uh, one of the books on your list this year that has uh, really spoken to me is is Factfulness by Hans Rosling, where he talks about not being an optimist but being a possibilist. I highly recommend you read the book starting today, uh, if I if I could say so myself. Uh, but your 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 book list is a gift because it's a not only is it a curation of of books in a world where we're inundated with content, um, but it's also a window into the subjects you're learning more about, and that may inform us of the work that you'll do in the future. So. When I look at the books from um, this past year, I see themes of optimism, definitely perspective building, uh, poverty, energy, and I also see that in, in the areas of focus for you. When you look at when you think about the books that you're reading this year and what we what we may see on the list next year, what themes do you think we'll we'll notice in in what you're absorbing or uh, reading today? Well, I. The nice thing now that I'm not uh, so extreme, in my 20s, I, I didn't get to read much at all. Yeah. And so like all this stuff is going on in biology and math, I just didn't, didn't get to read it. Then when I did get into my 30s, those vacations were uh, <laughs> a time to go back. Because when I was a student, you, know, you could study all sorts of things. Uh, anyway, now... You know, I read a lot of science, and that uses up, uh, you know, maybe half of the slots that I have. Really understanding U.S. poverty and what's going on there. There's a a few dozen books that try and give you a glimpse of that that are very good. This book, Factfulness, let me say, you know, it definitely uh, creates a framing for what's going on in the world. And the other one that's right up there is any uh, pinker book, starting with uh, uh, Better Angels of Our Nature. So the world is improving in in all these unbelievable ways, and yet it's a, the human characteristic is to look at where it's not improving or where it might not improve. And so you have this paradox that with all this improvement, both in rich countries and in poor countries, arguably improving even faster in, 
in poor countries, although people tend then to focus not on the ones that are improving, but on the one that's still left behind, so you have adverse selection, unless you have that notion that this system of capitalism and call it Western democracy has worked out extremely well, the temptation to say, oh, no, this is not a good system. Let's take a risk and try something very, very different. Uh, it's, it's very high. And so it is scary. Like if you take this book, uh, Factfulness, the group that, it, that is least aware of the improvements in the world are professors at U.S. universities. So when they have this <laughs> test of how many kids are in poverty now, how many kids are dying now, the people who are the furthest below 50%, which is the chimp level uh, yeah. <laughs> achievement, the, the people who manage to get all the way down to 20% are professors at U.S. universities. It's the lowest group ever tested. Uh, anyway, because they, they have a mindset that, oh, I come in and tell people about these problems, and, and they don't really have, you know, step back and look at some of these, these key statistics. So, you know, I do worry that if you don't get a lot of people thinking about that, then uh, you won't you know, continue things like uh, globalism, multilateralism, right. uh, you know, aid, aid generosity, and working together. Because the really hard problems like not having big pandemics or solving climate change or not having big wars, those are all things that require countries to work together. There really are no super big problems that don't require uh, countries to work together. And you, and interestingly enough, in the latest uh, goalkeeper report, with this, you know, just you do a great job of being very transparent about the wins and the and the challenges. You are making a pretty bold. It's very very clear that you want people to know that the global poverty deceleration is stalling out and could actually reverse. Can you talk just a little bit about? What are you trying like? What are you trying to get out there beyond the obvious of just facts? Um, and 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 why was that the headline? Yeah. So the development in the world, you know, it starts with the West, uh, sort of Europe, U.S., then post-war Japan comes into that. And you have been by say 1960 a very bimodal world. You have rich countries and poor countries, and you have no middle-income countries. Uh, well, very few. Then, as we progress, what happens is the vast majority of the world's population moves into middle-income status. You know, Brazil, Mexico, China, India most notably, you know, they represent uh, 37% of the world uh, between them. And so poor countries become an exception, and uh, rich countries are, are less than, than 20%. One of the measures used in that game is, is the extreme poverty measure, uh, $1.90 per day, uh, which is a World Bank thing. And so by that measure, we, we had 36% in, in 1990, and now we have 9%. That 9% is increasingly in one continent, increasingly in Africa. And on current trends by 2050, 90% of the extreme poor will be in Africa, and the population dynamics are such that Asia has almost no more population growth. It has a little bit left because people are living longer. But, you know, China's shrinking. Uh, India's, uh, you know, tailing off in a big way. None of the big countries are, are 
high population growth. You still have Afghanistan and Yemen, but that's not big numbers. So the number of babies in the world goes down a tiny bit every year of the century, but its mix goes from being 25% in Africa to 50% in Africa. And so Africa goes from a billion people to 4 billion people. So when we get to 11 billion, we're at seven now, the, most of the increment is in Africa. The rest is the aging Asians living longer, that they go from four to five, five billion. Anyway, so Africa mm-hmm. is hard. You know, the, the quality of governance, the, the disease burden, the infrastructure. And so in this report, we, we say, look, that's great. We got to 9%, but we could stay at 9% uh, for the next 30 years yeah. unless we do a lot of really good investments in health and education and governance in Africa. Uh, one country in Africa, uh, Nigeria, is headed to be the third largest country in the world, uh, 800 million by the end of the century. So actually, China will have shrunk by then. But anyway, so they have India, China, and Nigeria will be about the same wow. uh, size. Uh, and you know, Nigeria is not very big. And, and so it's daunting. And anybody who's, who's spent time in the tougher African countries, uh, that will test this notion that we'll be able to continue the mind-blowing improvement that, that we've had. Even in Africa, literacy has gone from 20% to 75%. You know, lifetimes are much longer. But until you get a certain quality of governance, then you can't get roads, you can't get electricity, you can't get schools, you can't get basic health care. And so they, their governance right now in many areas is, is below that, that threshold. So you know, we like to give good news, but we like to really be honest about... Uh, this mixed shift challenge that we're faced with. Well, it's time for me to uh, stop hogging the mic. And if you'd like to ask Bill a question, uh, we have two mics, one here and one there, and we'll, we'll alternate. Hi, I'm Varsha Rao. I'm the COO of Clover Health, and I'm a friend of Village Global. Thanks, everybody. Thank you for having me. Um, and thank you, guys. Um, what is Bill, what is the most impactful, specific unsolved problem that could be solved in your mind with technology that you'd like to see someone take on? Well, this idea of reading in general, if you can do that, then you can create an agent that helps a student like a one-on-one tutor would. You know, there's nothing that matches a great one-on-one tutor teaching somebody. That's always the gold standard that all other teaching methodologies uh, are compared to. And the misconceptions people have in math, if you really truly understand math, you can see those misconceptions and help people work through problems that get them very used to the, the manipulations and the, the visualization. So I'd say there are some learning tutor things that I would love to see done. You know, I'd love to see... It, the foundation's biggest quest, the one that people probably, you know, everybody knows working on HIV vaccine, but the biggest one that people don't really appreciate is that uh, 40% of kids in poor countries, their body and brain never develops. That is, during their early years, the disease and nutrition characteristics are such that they have an IQ less than 80. Uh, and so they're, 
what goes on there that has to do with the microbiome and inflammation of the stomach, uh, if we can intervene in that, and it's not a macronutrition thing. There's, there's gross amount uh, good food. Their twin is doing well. Uh, if we can solve the, under, the nutrition thing, that's very gigantic in terms of unlocking human potential. Hello, Bill. I'm Ayala Mir from AI Cube. I, uh, you talked about AI being one of the biggest promises of uh, software. And uh, imagine in 10 years, the Microsoft of AI coming about. What would be their business model? <laughs> He's asking for a friend. Well, the most... <laughs> the so-called personal agent that is permissioned in to, to see all your information and helps you, instead of you running you know, 20 applications and looking at data in time-ordered view, it, because it understands your preferences, your context, it is your portal to the world. And so that's a replacement for social networking, search, you know, productivity applications, you know, going to Amazon and picking something. That is the thing that you interface with. And so it, in, it collapses what are the giant's current, you know, somewhat uncontested business models, uh, each in their own niche. You know, Facebook, social networking, Amazon, uh, buying uh, Google search. And so it has the opportunity to combine all those different elements. That is an advertising element, a markup element. It'll probably be done on a subscription basis for a lot of people because this idea of uh, not wondering what the trade-offs are. The advertising model can still exist, though, because there are win-win situations where your desire to know about a new product type is beneficial to you and to the advertiser. So it would be a mix of subscription and and advertising. Uh, Probably no transaction fees because you want to be neutral to the... Uh, who you end up doing doing business with, so you don't want to have essentially brand uh, uh, house brand type product or distribution channel things. But the personal agent is the paradigmatic thing that collapses the current order of the software industry. And a company, Google, Microsoft, someone will create that collapse. Beautiful. Thanks. You mentioned the amazing benefits of Moore's law. Uh, unfortunately, it's finally over, at least ending, for sequential computing. We're making a lot of progress with custom ASICs for machine learning, like tensor processing units, but that's a narrower domain. I'm curious if you see any path over the next 40 to 50 years to recover that exponential scaling in computing. Yeah, this is a, a very good point. It's a kind of a Vostov Schmiel-like point, which is <laughs> you do reach plateaus, uh, and... In terms of clock speed, uh, a single thread, we reached a plateau actually quite a while ago. We've still been able to get the design rules down, but because of heat density problems, we haven't been able to get clock speed up. Now, the beauty thing is we're using more area, you know, particularly in a cloud-type computing environment, uh, for the problems that can be split across many threads, which is about... 98% of all problems, if you're super clever, you get... So we're still feeling like, oh, my God, we are getting so much extra compute. <laughs> the, the two frontiers, there's a thing called cryo computing, 
where you can go back and up your clock speeds because you superconduct the wires. And there's a few people like Microsoft who are very uh, advanced in this. Weirdly, some people you'd think would work on it aren't working on it. And then there's quantum. And quantum is, you know, I spend a lot of time uh, studying quantum because it's interesting mathematics. The both can we build a quantum computer, when can we build a quantum computer? It, it, quantum computer's not interesting until you have at least 10,000 qubits. Then, okay, then, then it's interesting. For a certain class of problems, how big is that class of problems? Weirdly, prime number factorization is, because of Schwarzschild's theorem, in that set of things. So you can issue yourself as many bitcoins as you want, uh, among <laughs> other uh, things that, uh, that can happen. So I, quantum, even though Microsoft is putting billions in, and it's very promising, exact, predicting that is not clear. Predicting cloud computing and continue cloud scale out, uh, including taking the uh, FPGA and GPU pieces and integrating those in in a much deeper way. I mean, GPUs are very expensive today, and they don't inherently have to be for the dominant ML training and inference things that we do. So there's a generation that will come there that, you know, certainly a, uh, another factor of 10. Hi, yeah, Jay, I'm a little hesitant to reveal that I'm on faculty at Stanford. Okay. <laughs> um, but I teach computer science there, and I'm very, a big believer that there's a huge opportunity for society around learning computer science skills. There's, there's this big need. Uh, and then the other trend that, that we've been talking about uh, among some of my colleagues is just the, the, the pressure for, uh, with awesome tools like Khan Academy and all the online learning that's available, the pressure that's coming on the traditional residential university model. What do you think uh, is the, the right way to usher in kind of the, the evolution where residential education, that the thought leadership universities shrink, and maybe there's less residential education opportunities at the university level uh, for students? What's the right role for those thought leading universities to play? Well, there's no doubt that it, you know, Stanford's not under pressure. That is, the you know, philanthropy and science grants that are available to it. There is a question, should it try and grow its student body because it's such a wonderful thing for the world to have more students go there. The, the key schools that really are at risk are the state-level schools where the vast majority of college education in this country is done by for your state schools. And that's where you still have tuitions uh, that are like you know, 11000 to 17000 per year as opposed to, say, 60000 per year. Now, that sixty has immense scholarship pieces in it. So if, you, if Stanford wants you, that you are not economically blocked from going there, which is fantastic. There's about five institutions that can afford to do that. Uh, so you know, if you're in the top well, 0.1% on merit, and, and you can make them figure that out, uh, then that works out very well. The state-level institutions are raising tuition because you know, they haven't raised the productivity that much. I do believe that a, a mix of using more online, you know, sharing more material, can still give us this whole tiering where you have Stanford and Harvard still there, also contributing some of the material 
that gets used by those other tiers. The other tiers today don't like just taking a course from somebody else. And the number of students who can learn without a social setting around it is very, very small. You know, if you want to learn computer science, just, you know, Knuth wrote the book. Buy it? Okay. Uh, you know, read it and do the problems for if you really think you know this thing. If you want to learn physics, Feynman wrote the book. Uh, just read the damn book. It's all there. So that when we put stuff online, it, we don't have anything in online physics that's any better than Feynman's book, honestly. Honestly. Now, it's a little easier to learn. Uh, you know, the guy makes jokes every 20 minutes, or at least tries to, uh, and he does more demos and things. So learning is a weird social phenomena. And so, you know, our foundation, our big problem is that the group that does the worst with online learning are low-income students because their notion of why am I learning their sense of self-confidence, the ability to figure out, oh, I just got stuck because you know two minuses cancel out, and I, I never saw that notation before. They just hit dead ends all the time that if you're sitting in your dorm at Stanford, you know, somebody walks down and uh, helps you get through it. And so we, we have not solved the problem of how we get a low-cost education for low-income students where you actually complete. You know, most community colleges have a greater than 50% uh, dropout rate. Uh, most four-year colleges have a greater than 30% dropout rate. Now, Stanford doesn't have a dropout rate. Why? Because they don't let people in who would drop out. You know, they, they succeeded the day the admissions department was done. They, they didn't make those people hardworking. They just picked hardworking people, which it's fine. I... I I have no disagreement with it, but it means this notion of dropping out. It's, you know, most people in this room don't know much about it, about how that comes up and gets discouraging. And so we have to solve not just the cost thing through digitization, but also the framework of motivation so that it, on an, you know, a low-income person has as much chance of graduating as an uh, elite uh, person, and we're further away from that today than than we've ever been. Nick, That's great. Uh, hi, Nick Maida, CEO of Gainsight. Um, Bill, you, throughout the talk, you talked about um, AI encapsulating human reasoning and kind of what it can do around that. What's the algorithm or heuristic you use personally to think about which cause is most worthy? So not not which solution is most effective, but which cause to work on, whether it's poverty or disease or anything else. Yeah. So. There are people like Dustin Muskovitz who really went down this path of trying to do it. And it's brilliant and it's worthwhile. And he can share how he went down that path. He actually picked global health as one of uh, the things. Also, avoiding AI taking over the world is another one that uh, he he picked. Uh, But most people pick their philanthropy because of more of an emotional story type thing. You know, my daughter had anorexia. It turns out, you know, there's... I know a philanthropist whose daughter had anorexia. And he's funded the most amazing research. They're making really great advances. You know, that's phenomenal. There was a philanthropist who had a son with autism. He has funded all the really great genetic understanding. Actually, they solved schizophrenia genetics uh, because that turned out to be way easier. Autism genetics is very complicated, but they are, are finally getting to the bottom of that. So most people pick things 
for more emotional reasons. Now, once you get into that domain, then you can be a madman about, hey, why does my school drop out kids? Uh, you know, why are parentless black males having such a so much harder time in this school than others? What particular things could we do for them? So you can bring your business sense once you've picked your topics. There's so many topics. If you want to save lives with least money, then, you know, come to Seattle and let's work together uh, on that. You know, that's that's probably rises up. But I didn't pick it because of that. I picked it because of the injustice of letting a kid die. You know, there were literally two vaccines that were invented for diarrhea and pneumonia that were being given in middle-income and rich countries where less than 5% of the deaths from those diseases existed. And the kids who had 95% of the deaths weren't getting the vaccines. That was the paradigmatic thing that made me realize, okay, uh, even though it's similar to what Rockefeller Foundation did, and I didn't want to do the same thing they did, you know, to some degree we're doing the same thing they did. We're getting like a good musical undertone here. This is really... So I apologize. I, I we don't have any more time Uh-oh. for questions right now. But I get to ask you the last question, okay. which is a which is a tradition sorry. here at Village Global. I'm sorry. Um, no founder can change the world alone. It requires a village around you to help you realize your full potential. Who's someone in your village who has been instrumental uh, to your success, and how so? Well, I, there's no doubt. That, uh, you know, creating a board, having people like Dave Marquardt there who wasn't at the company, you know, and we were so overwrought about, you know, this is right, this is wrong, we messed this up, that having people have a little bit of distance come in and talk to us is good. You know, for the last, oh, 30 years or so, I've gotten to be friends with Warren Buffett, and he, he's in Omaha He's not in this tech world at all, you know, and to him it's like, hey, how could you ever know which will rise and which will fall? I'm not going to put money uh, until Apple sold at a multiple of 12. Then uh, he decided he could put $50 billion into that. Uh, after he asked all his friends, hey, you know, if, they, if somebody had an uh, iPhone that was half as expensive, would you switch away, you know, or is it more like jewelry where you really want to to have an iPhone, and so he decided that the, those profit streams might not be eliminated anytime soon. Anyway, he, because he's not in this world, he has a, a, a definite way of looking at things, including this idea of how uh, work should be fun. He has made his work so much fun that he works more hours than I do. He works six days a week at 88 years old. And he likes to say that he skips to work every day. He, he doesn't, but uh, he says that. <laughs> it's a good uh, visual. He, when he was 83, he could still skip, but now he's gotten really, he can't do it. Uh, so uh, having somebody like that, you know, the toughest thing I went through was this antitrust lawsuit yeah. where, you know, it didn't seem very predictable. And he was a great counsel during all of that stuff. So getting somebody who's in, successful in another domain, uh, but yet kind of a business-type uh, mindset. Anyway, for me, that, that was a huge gift. Bill, thank you so much. It's such an honor to, to be here with you. And thank you to Village Global for giving everybody the opportunity to spend the morning with, with Bill Gates. 
Thank you. Good job. Right. Thank you. Thank you.